Hello, and welcome back to Out the Gate, the podcast about sailing and adventure on and around San Francisco Bay. Boy, how the world has changed in the last two weeks since I posted the last episode. Like many of you, my family and I are all hunkered down at home doing everything we can to stop the spread of this coronavirus. But while there's plenty of talk out there about that, I know that one of the things I need right now is distraction from all the anxiety-provoking news. So I'm hoping that this podcast will provide some needed distraction and entertainment. And it's a good one this week. Sailor, author, and philosopher John Kretschmer is on today's show. QM Travels is still the sponsor of the podcast. And while Quincy and Mitchell have decided to put all charters on hold for the time being, they're still an amazing resource when it comes to sailing advice and information. In fact, they've been instrumental in helping me get my boat, Dovka, re-rigged, prepped, and launched in Berkeley, and then they helped me get it over to Marin and into her permanent slip. And I can tell you it was a bit of a scramble trying to finish up all I needed to do before the world basically shut down, and I couldn't have done it without their help. And actually, come to think of it, I was introduced to today's guest, John Kretschmer, by Mitchell. So a double thank you there. Visit qmtravels.com. You can read their blog and consider booking a trip with them once life returns to some semblance of normal. Okay, I'm really excited to share today's interview. John Kretschmer is a philosopher sailor and a great storyteller in the vein of Bernard Matissier. As a sailor, he's logged more than 300,000 offshore miles and sailed with thousands of people imparting his knowledge both in person and through his writing. You may know his books, At the Mercy of the Sea, Flirting with Mermaids, Cape Horn to Starboard, and others. And most recently, he's written a book called Sailing to the Edge of Time, which just last week came out as an audiobook, which you can get on Amazon. John was in town with his wife and daughter a few weeks ago to speak at the St. Francis Yacht Club, and he was kind enough to stop by my place a few days later. We sat down at the kitchen table and talked about his adventure around in Cape Horn, his heavy weather sailing strategies, his writing, and a whole lot more. In fact, he shared a scoop about his next book that I won't spoil here. You'll just have to listen. This is a fun one. Enjoy. Thank you so much, John, for joining me it's on the pleasure, podcast. Yeah. It's, I'm so excited to have this conversation. You were in town speaking at the St. Francis Yacht Club earlier this week, talking about Sailing to the Edge of Time, your new book, but also telling a lot of sailing stories. <laughs> it's kind of what I do. <laughs> <laughs> and you're wonderful at it. Um, well, having read uh, uh, a couple of your books, I have to say it's uh, wonderful to uh, have somebody who can not only have the these amazing ex sailing experiences, but then share these stories in such a, a compelling way. I appreciate that. I wanted to, to start by asking you about the first time you sailed into San Francisco. 
<laughs> well, yeah, that's why I, I talked about that at the Yacht Club the other day, but that was a long time ago, 36 years ago, and we had just finished. It was the concluding point of a long voyage from New York by way of Cape Horn in a 32-foot boat, and San Francisco was never more eagerly awaited. <laughs> the last leg of that trip was 72 days, and it was a, a real challenge, but... Yeah, it was pretty exciting when we got here, that's for sure. I didn't know what I was doing. The fact that we'd sailed to the bottom of the world and back was pretty incredible. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about uh, that trip overall, where the uh, the idea was to kind of do what the clipper ships had done exactly. back during gold rush times. Right. The, our goal was to retrace the classic clipper ship route, which was New York to San Francisco. And, of course, that included going around Cape Horn. And... We didn't, you know, we were realistic about what our goals were. Gigi was a Contessa 32, 24-foot waterline. When we were doing six knots, we were hauling. So our objective was to do it in 120 days. That was the average time of a clipper ship. And uh, we, <laughs> we didn't make it, but we had a lot of cool adventures along the way. We were, I was, we were capsized early on, and I was pitched overboard. We survived that. We... Um, in fact, when we finally rounded the horn, we didn't even know it. We were so naive, but we did know the barometer had dropped dramatically to like 960 millibars, and we were just kind of waiting for this Cape Horn snorter, as they call the great gales down there, to swallow us up, and it never came. And we just huh. pushed on around the horn, and once we got around the horn, we had this, these huge gales in the Southern Ocean, but they were from the Southwest, so they were pushing us up the coast, and... Honestly, I think the calms off the equator were the most challenging part of the whole damn trip, really. <laughs> Many sailors talk and write about that, how mm. the calms are so much more difficult than yeah. the storms. Talk about that. That's Why? A, you know, that's a great line of Motessier's where he says, you know, storms terrify me, but calms undermine my soul. We had one stretch of calm, Ben, in that trip where in 15 days we went 300 miles. If you do the math, it comes down to less than a knot. Um, per hour and then the low point was when we threw the food scraps overboard one night and in the morning they'd outpaced us <laughs> i was reading that yesterday on the bus just, and i laughed out loud just drifting <laughs> nowhere yeah <laughs> oh that was honestly that really tested your resolve and i wrote about that to some degree in the new book when you're young and ambitious and, 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 and missing your girlfriend and all these things, those calms were maddening. Today, I think I would embrace them differently hmm. and maybe realize in a way that it's, it's almost an oasis of tranquility where you have, I think I would have just, I'm at this cool stage in my life, really appreciating each day at sea. And I think I would have handled it more, more, uh, with more calm for sure. And maybe seeing that there's a bit of an opportunity to just be somewhere where nobody knew where we were. I mean, now, we were so little communication in those days, too. No, right. Nobody tracked anybody. <laughs> you had a, a single sideband that you were we able to... We had a to... single sideband, but we were going so slowly. In order to actually fire the thing up, we had to start the engine to have enough battery power. We carried, I think, 10 gallons of diesel. And we... I wanted this, I had this illusion of this, this incredible idea of being able to motor 12 hours into San Francisco. So we were hoarding our fuel. 
So we might do a single sideband call once a week, once every two weeks, and you know, use a quart of diesel, and it was it was oh. a big sacrifice. <laughs> now, one of the things that you write about in, in your book, Cape Horn to Starboard, was this your first book, Cape that Horn to Starboard? That was my first book, yeah. yeah. Which I just finished and, and really, really yeah. enjoyed. But you talk about the difficulties of living with somebody else on the 32-foot boat, particularly during those those calms, calms yeah. and that rough passage to San Francisco. Well, you know, I had a different... So the, the, the trip was three legs, New York to Rio de Janeiro with a, with a little detour from the capsize. And then the triumphant leg was Rio down around the Horn to Valparaiso, Chile. And that was with my friend Ty, who was the owner of the boat. And the third leg was with this chap, Bill Oswald. And he the whole thing was set up to be difficult for him because we'd had this triumphant Cape Horn rounding. I was already dreaming of the end of the voyage, and then we encountered these terrible calms. So I don't think I was as charitable as I probably should have been, and I think that Oz, as we called him, was looking for high adventure, and he got saddled with this sort of drudgery, this day after day of just having to dig out every mile. And so it didn't foster a really cool relationship <laughs> but uh, but you have over the years and and now you <clears throat> what you've sailed how many miles now in your it's crazy lifetime? you know i mean it's somewhere over three hundred thousand, and wow. i've lost track and honestly i've stopped counting because it 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 does seem weird to count miles at this point and yeah <laughs> i know well, that every year with the sailing business we have we do ten to 15,000 miles a year. And wow. I've been doing that for like 30 years. I mean, it's crazy. It's just lots of ocean miles. Well, another way to count is number of different people that you've sailed with. Yeah, and, and I think that's a really nice way to count. And it's, a, in, it's about 1,000 okay. that I've taken to wow. see. 1,000 people you've taken to yeah. see. And I love that role. I mean, I, I talk a lot about that, and that's sort of the, the metaphor I use. I call myself a ferryman. And... I really do, it's sort of, I've just kind of morphed into a real natural role with that. I like taking people to sea. I'm, I'm, I'm generous with my knowledge. I'm, I'm old enough, maybe, and wise enough to realize that what I have I like to share, and I get something from everybody. I mean, it's a, there's an honesty of exchange that takes place on the ocean that's hard to find, at least for me, anyplace else, and I really dig that. <laughs> Tell me about what you've learned about yourself personally as a, a sailor and and leader, having to deal with so many different kinds of people. I'm sure some of them difficult, some of them easier. I live kind of a charm life, Ben, because the people that find their way into my universe are rarely difficult people. Um, most of them are dying to be there and have, you know, we are kindred spirits in a lot of ways, or at least like-minded, and that makes life so much easier. I mean, and it is interesting, like, things like political differences in these divided times kind of melt away, because they seem frightfully insignificant at sea, which is really cool to me, and religious differences, and all of these things. I mean, they're there, but they don't surface very often. And Do you have any rules on the boat about talking about these I things? I don't. You yeah. Know, yeah, I don't. I, I'm a non-rule person. <laughs> I'm not. There's no evidence by your life. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> there's no whiteboards with lists of do's and don'ts. Yeah. But I have a lot of respect, and I, I think that people have respect for me, and so it, 
You know, when this this world of mutual respect strips away the need for writing everything down with a little silly little rule. Yeah. But um, I've learned about myself that I have a reservoir of patience, which really has seen me through a lot of difficult times at sea. And, and I think it's unfair sometimes when someone's making their first voyage and they're not reacting to it as well as they might have hoped they would. And, you know, I look back at the sea stories I've written and, I, you know, stories where, where I wrote about what seemed monumental storms in, earlier in my career, I have a feeling wouldn't seem so monumental today. And I think a lot of that is just the patience and understanding that little strategy here, little move here, a little heave to here, and you can really diffuse these things. And so that's what I've learned about myself. And I really try to share that with, hey, just, you know what, we're just going to take this in stride. We're not going to let it completely knock us off kilter. We're not going to miss dinner over this. <laughs> we're, you know, might be blowing 40 and we're pounding, but we're going to have a nice dinner and we're going to have captain's hour and... Those are things I didn't know when I was 25. <laughs> I love the clip that you showed during your talk earlier this mm-hmm. week. Um, I don't know how how much it was blown, but it was it was blown pretty good, right? Yeah. And you're, somebody's in the cockpit steering, listening to opera, yeah, and enjoying themselves. That was kind <laughs> of a, that's cool, isn't it? Yeah. Showed your mo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I mean, I don't, you know, there've been there's drama for sure at times, and there've been moments of high excitement. But I do believe that if you approach this with the right frame of mind, you can diffuse a lot of things early on. And, and also this realization that it is just a cool place. My, my theme of this new book is that time spent sailing is time well spent. And it's just a place, it, it's an oasis. And in, in some ways, I think the ocean is the last great wilderness. Everything on land seems pretty well mapped and charted and tracked and this is and that's. But in the middle of the sea, you are still in a wilderness. And, you know, like the great, you know, I write about Thoreau and John Muir. I mean, and and they were in the wilderness at a time when the wilderness didn't seem as frightful as it did to people before them. And I think that's where we are as sailors today. The wilderness is a thing of beauty. And... To be able to just step back and feel it, and it's, it's, I, I really like that. <laughs> That's wonderful. Mm. Your newest book is called Sailing to the Edge of Time. People can find it where? Everywhere. Mostly okay. the reality is people seem to find books on Amazon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you find it on Amazon or, yeah. or your site, I'm sure. Yeah. Honestly, I'd almost prefer people get it on Amazon because <laughs> okay. I'm so dreadful at fulfilling orders and things. But, <laughs> but yeah. anyway, the, the title alludes to the fact that you talk a lot about time. Mm. You wrote about in your other books, you, you lost your father as a young man and your sister a few years after mm-hmm. that. Did that influence your... 100%, as my daughter Nikki would say. It influenced my life dramatically. So I remember I was 16 when my father died, and he was 53. And and those are two numbers that make no sense at either end of that equation. And I I can remember the day he died so clearly. It's a long time ago. And, And I literally trying to make a deal with God or whoever you you dealt with to try to spare someone's life and and just coming away with the the conclusion that time was a thief and time you couldn't really trust time and I nurtured it through reading um, I, I 
really became interested in existentialism at that time, which was kind of a philosophy of the times anyway. I mean, people of that era, we read Camus and Sartre and and then I sort of stumbled into the Stoics and I and then and then at the same time I read every single sailing book that had ever been written, I think, and I filtered all of my philosophy through sailing books <laughs> and came away with this this idea that you know, I needed to get to see and live my life. I needed to find a place where each moment sort of treated you unsparingly and you you were, you dealt with it, whatever came your way. And it was inspired by my father's death and then my sister got cancer when she was 23 and died a few years later. And yeah, just there's no belief that this idea that you prepare for the future is the only way to go. Really, and I, I lived that way for a long, long time with crazy recklessness maybe, but... Until I had kids of my own, when I was in my mid to late 30s, did I realize that yeah, maybe I need a little planning here and there. Yeah. <laughs> Even out there at sea, it's sometimes hard to hold on to that being in the moment. You talk about it is. wanting to get to the next port or yeah. wanting to see your girlfriend who's waiting for you. Or, um, for sure. Talk so, about that. So, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing right now because... I have a chapter in this new book called Jet, and I, I can hear my kids or see their eyes rolling over now, but Jet stands for Just Enough Technology. I think that the technological development in navigation, particularly GPS and all the really you know cool stuff we have, has, has had a bad effect on living in the moment because landfalls have gone from becoming super eventful to becoming inevitable as you just watch the you know you watch the countdown to the waypoint now we're 312.872 miles to go and and so it becomes this constant numbers game and i think that that forces you out of the moment and pushes you into the future and one of the things that's really interesting to do is to just do a week with celestial navigation mm. Or just, I, I tell everybody that we're not going to be slaves to waypoints. So when we start our passages, we do, we do all sorts of navigation, and then we don't have a waypoint. If it's going to be a 10- or 12-day passage, we take whatever is the best point of sale we can find, and we sail it in a kind of, I know this sounds really mushy, but we sail it in a bit of an organic way. We keep the boat happy, the crew happy, and we don't become a slave to this waypoint. And that has a remarkable effect of getting you t back to the moment. And it, you know, and it's funny because hardly anybody sails that way. Waypoints dominate us. They are, they just shackle us. Everything is waypoint driven. And if you make a passage without a waypoint, just with an ending, it's, it's really liberating. Because <laughs> it's so easy these days to take a bearing and plug it into your autopilot. Oh, yeah. and, and that's it. Your yeah. autopilot talks to your plotter and... You just do, you trim like a maniac to get to that waypoint, and everything is about driving the boat at speed to that point. And believe me, anyone who sails with me knows I'm competitive as hell. I like to sail fast and keep the boat moving, but I also just kind of see the, the passage in the big view now, mm -hmm. and when you see the passage in the, in the big view, it has the opposite effect in that it allows you to kind of really enjoy each moment, because you know what? If we get there in 10 days or 10.2 days or 9.9 .9 days, it's all the same. At the end of that time, you don't remember the, the little hours shaved here or there or lost here. And 
So, but you do remember just that glorious reach you took because you could. <laughs> Sorry, the philosophical stuff. No, I love it. I love it. So the competitive stuff, you say you are competitive. Do oh, you yeah. race at all? I never raced. Um, but as a kid, I was super involved in athletics. Mm. I was um, uh, pretty good. I was a pole vaulter. And you I, got some scholarships. I got a lot. Yeah, yeah, I screwed up a bunch of scholarships in <laughs> <laughs> in high school. I, I'm not exactly sure, but I was in the top five in the country probably in as a pole vaulter my senior year, and I won all the big meets. Um, and then, yeah, went to Michigan, Michigan State, other schools on scholarships, but. I was really sick of track. I was one of those kids, a uh, warning to parents, that I'd started pole vaulting when I was six or seven years old. Both my brothers were pole vaulters. Wow. And I, I just wanted to go sailing. I wanted to bust out of the college. I felt like I was in prison there. And, um, and fortunately, my mom understood me. She, she yeah, and I talk were, about that. So your mom saw this in you. And yeah, when you my said... mom and I were the best of friends. And my mom was such a tough lady. I mean, imagine in a... Let's see, it would probably have been in a five or six year period. She lost her husband, her daughter, both her parents, and her brother. Wow. And somehow never lost her spirit and never lost her zest for living. And my mom was really a remarkable person. The one thing you couldn't do with my mom was to come up with excuses. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, if you screwed up and you admitted it, well, she was the first to give you a hand to help you off, off again. If you started making reasons for why this happened that were all you know, bullshit, she would track that down every time. Wow. But, yeah, she was a really remarkable person, and she knew that my mom had a really good insight into me, and I think she knew what I wanted to do was have experiences and write about them and didn't really think that college was the place for me anyway. Um, you know, I read, like, voraciously from the time I was six years old, and she knew that I was going to be okay, and she was, like, ready to send me out and, you know, go have some adventures. So tell us about the deal she made with you when you said college is not for me, <laughs> So we had a classic meeting. I'd been kicked off the team at Michigan State, screwed up another scholarship. So I, I came home, and we went out to dinner, and, and she said, you know, Johnny, I know you're not as dumb as you seem. <laughs> <laughs> Always a great thing to hear from your mom. Yeah. So she made me a deal that if I, you know, forget school, if I worked hard for, I think we said six months, maybe a year, whatever I was managed to save, she would match. Um, I mean, she literally matched from some of the insurance money in my father's death, provided I bought a little sailboat and took off. Wow. And didn't just talk about it, didn't just read books about it, just went and did it. And 20 years old, I bought a little Bristol 27 and shoved off not knowing what I was doing. Funny story, Ben. I, so I lived in Michigan then, and I bought this little engineless boat. It was an awesome boat in hindsight, Carl Alberg design, and shipped it down to Miami. And I just picked a boat yard out of the yellow pages. <laughs> and I got there, and it was Thanksgiving, and the boat yard was closed down, and you know, I was you know, totally, totally broke, and I took the bus down. <laughs> um, so I, I couldn't even sleep on the boat, so I slept in this, I met this old Cuban lady who had like an apartment, you know, and I, I grew up in Detroit, in the city. I was all familiar with that scene, but these, these Cubans made me nervous until I realized they were like the greatest people on earth, and 
I had cafe con leche and ropa vieja, and she treated me like her son for the three days. Anyway, I launched the boat, not knowing that I have to go through seven bridges to get out to Biscayne Bay, and I have no engine. <laughs> so I would literally sail up to the bulkhead, of, and I had no radio, and I'd grab the bulkhead, and I'd shout up to the bridge tender, hey, hey. He would close the bridge. I kind of muscle the boat through and got out to Biscayne Bay. Seven times. Seven times. And I was on my way. (laughs) Oh, I was so naive. That is fantastic. (laughs) Anyway, yeah. And you had a girlfriend at that time who joined you and you guys were sailing together. Yeah. I convinced her to drop out of college to join me, which did not make her parents very happy. <laughs> but we had some great adventures over but the years. But it wasn't long after that no. that you were um, doubling the horn. Yeah, a couple of years. Things really... A um, couple of years. So what happened was, this is it's hard to really picture it today, but in those days, there really was no reliable navigational system. Loran could barely even take you to the Bahamas, so you had to learn celestial navigation. And I taught myself celestial. And, I mean, by hook and crook, it was crazy how hard it was, but I eventually became good at it. How and did you learn? I'm curious. I read, and I studied. Mary Blewett, or? Oh, I threw Mary Blewett's book in the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> I hated that little I've book. I've never been able to get that book. That, that is the most overrated book. Mary, I've never met you, and I'm sorry to say, but you open this book and these diagrams and local hour angle. I can't tell you how many times my father has passed me that book, and it's I can't get through it. Oh, it's but. the world's worst book. I don't think anyone's actually ever read through that book. No, I came across this book called Common Sense Celestial Navigation mm-hmm. by Hewitt Schlereth, and it was the first time that he actually explained. I, mean, I could figure the math out, but how he explained that you actually like got position on a plotting sheet. It was the Rosetta Stone to me. And interesting, Hewitt and I are friends now. I met him. So the publishing company that published Flirting with Mermaids, the, the publisher wrote me a letter saying, I'm thinking about publishing a book on celestial navigation. What do you think? And I said, oh, I don't know. It sounds like a good idea. Who wrote it? And he said, Hewitt Schlereth. I said, what? Hewitt Slareth is still alive. I mean, he was like God to me. And then so I became the editor of that book, and Hewitt and I became friends. And That's I just fantastic. saw him in San Diego a few years ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so then I started a navigation school because I had no money, and the only thing I knew in the world was celestial navigation. And Ty, who I ended up sailing around the horn across the Atlantic, was one of my students. And that was the how the whole thing got going and so that's crazy (laughs) what's interesting is that people are really still interested to learn celestial from you there's a huge revival in it so I have a workshop in Spring Cove which you know very well in Solomon's yeah Um, next November and I think I have 16 people signed up Um, yeah so I'm like capping it finally but it's you know and I'm speaking of celestial I'm a little little plug here because I'm not not much of a plug guy, but I have a really interesting project for fall of 2021. Uh-huh. I'm going to do a celestial and natural navigation workshop in Sagres in Portugal, right on the compound of where Prince Henry the Navigator had his navigation school. Wow. Right at Cape St. Vincent, overlooking the, you know, the southwest point of Europe and the brooding Atlantic. And it's going to be, and people are going to come and stay in a historic inn right at Sagres. And we're going to do a celestial class there. That is pretty cool. <laughs> That's going to be really because fun. You are 
very into history as well. It's I one am, of your passions. Yeah, for sure. And uh, the Mayan. The Mayan. We've done a lot of historicals. You know, I've always tried to scheme these historical trips. I mean, we did a really interesting project with Sinbad the Sailor, who kind of like Paul Bunyan or whatever. No one really knows if there was a Sinbad, but the stories were so well known that they are kind of... The story of Sinbad is, is the story of Odysseus in that part in the Middle East. And it's mm. really, really kind of an anchor for a lot of a lot of myths and a lot of literature. And we did a Sinbad retracing. We did um, I did a bunch of stuff with Columbus in the 1992 Quincentennial Jubilee. But really, it was the Maya that I became super interested in. And was we, that just through reading? How did you find yeah, that passion? it was through sailing down to Belize on a delivery and be sort of getting to know some Belize fishermen who sail these lovely Belizean sloops mm. and talking with these guys and learning that, you know, the Mayas had this incredible maritime heritage. It is really interesting. The Maya are coined by some preeminent archaeologists as the Phoenicians of the New World. They were really a seafaring people. Huh. And I had no idea about this growing up. And it's one of my pet peeves about history in America and is that we are so land-based in our thinking. I mean, every kid learns about manifest destiny, and we know everything about the pioneers and the mountain men, and I don't mean to diminish their value at all, but the American maritime enterprise in the early 1800s was, was the most far-reaching in the world. Our sailors were the greatest. And I think one of the reasons why nobody knows about it is because they were involved in whaling. And whaling is a weird thing. I mean, the, the way, it was horrible. They exterminated the whales essentially from the face of the planet. But they were extremely capable mariners. I mean, they were doing, they were up beyond the Bering Straits. They were in Antarctica. They were all over the world. It was a very American enterprise. Americans were the best navigators. I mean, Cook writes in his journal that the American whalers told him where the Hawaiian Islands were. Huh. And so it's, yeah, it's interesting. We don't learn. And you learn. think that overshadows? I, I don't know. It's my theory, and it's just a theory, and I could be completely wrong, but the, the sort of the very sad part of whaling overshadows this incredible nautical history that America has. By the time the golden spike, which we learn about that connected the railroads, was knocked in the ground, thousands of ships had sailed from the East Coast to California. I mean, thousands and thousands. You know, you would get the feeling from history that no one got there till the railroad was finished or the pioneers, you know, clunked over the mountains, but the sailors had been there forever. It's so one of the things that I love <laughs> about living in San Francisco is this city was literally built upon ships that were sunk to make <laughs> landfill. Exactly. I know those pictures are amazing from, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and yeah. The, the harbor used to be just ch chock-a-block with tall ships. Yeah. So the history is, is real, but even though we, I mean, we walk over it every day, those of us who go downtown, but we don't know what's there. Yeah, I know, the maritime history. I feel it every time I come in this town, though. Just, yeah. just even in the names of streets, and there's mariners this, and sailors that, and yeah, I, I think that it is such a nautical place. Yeah, yeah. it has that. <laughs> It has that feel. Yeah, to just it for reeks sure. of the sea here. I love it. So let's talk. Let's get back to where we started. Sorry. And no, no, this has been a, a fantastic conversation. But I'm just looping us back to San Francisco and your 
what was it, 70-something day passage? Yeah, the last leg, Valparaiso to San Francisco was 72 days. 72 days, a long time. A long time in a small boat as a 25-year-old kid with, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Being ready to be done with this trip. Um, So tell us about that those last few miles coming in the golden gate well you know it's funny that this one thing that i didn't talk about the club yesterday or whenever that was um is that the bottom was so foul (laughs) (laughs) i mean if we could get four and it's a weird thing that happened because we'd haul the boat out in chile and put on new bottom paint but where we had the boat was a is a place where a lot of copper is exported, mm-hmm. and it was Micron Forty Four, one of the early versions of it. And they speculated that something about the copper in the water interacted with the paint, huh. and we had a really bad performance from it. And so we just had a garden on the boat. Mm. That was another thing Oz and I did every day. One of us we'd take turns diving over and scraping the bottom. Which started a... I guess that's one of the benefits of not having much wind. <laughs> exactly <laughs> right, yeah. You know, and it started something that I've carried on forever. Is I love to swim off the boat offshore. And even on our, on our training passages here, people are always kind of amazed. But, you know, even in moderate conditions, we'll either heave to or drop all sails and go for a swim. How's it different than just jumping off near shore? It makes you have a lot of respect for the deck edge. You realize how small that boat is and how big the sea is all around. And it is one nice thing. If people aren't feeling great, just getting in the water is very therapeutic. It kind of makes them kind of get over their seasickness for a while anyway. And it, I, I think it gives you a perspective of your boat that's hard to get otherwise. You know, when you're on the boat all the time... Your your world, you, it's kind of a small little straight view, but from this from swimming, it's a wide angle view. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You hope it stays close up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're pretty. We always have one person stay aboard, and <laughs> that's good. Yeah. yeah, no, but it was when the Golden Gate Bridge loomed into view. That was real exciting. And then you know, I've told the story a lot of times about. Um, yeah, tell us the story of, of, of your arrival in San it is Francisco because it's a great story. It's a good story. So we arrive, and you know, I was kind of maybe thinking maybe people might come out to greet us or something, but not really expecting it. And one little boat came out. It was a press boat, and they led us to Pier 39. And I, in fact, I showed Nikki, my daughter, where, where the exact landing spot was, and they had this little tent set up. And Stroh's Brewery was our Stroh's was our sponsor, and so we were. Yeah, it's exciting, and we come ashore, and sure enough, Mayor Feinstein, then mayor, now senator, obviously, was there to present the keys to the city. Well, she was there, sort of. She was sitting in her limo, so as we came off the boat and we're standing there, and you could see her in her limo, and she was kind of sizing up the crowd. And I think she realized it wasn't worth the chance of getting wet. There wasn't a whole lot of publicity to be had, so she sent out her assistant. And um, he comes flying out, and he's, he's in a hurry, and he's got his trench coat pulled over his head because it's drizzling. And he says, okay, let's get this over with. On behalf of Mayor Feinstein the city of San Francisco, he reads this proclamation. We give you, John Kretschmer, the keys to San Francisco. And he hands me these big red keys. And I have no idea this was happening, and I drop the damn things. And it's windy, you know, it's San Francisco, and the keys start blowing down the dock. So I scurry over and step on them and crush them, not realizing they were styrofoam. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to catch them. Before Trying to they catch them, them before they went in the water. <laughs> uh, but anyway, that no, that triggered this two weeks of um, 
my fame. Um, and it was a whirlwind. It was a whirlwind tour, yeah. I got to my hotel, and literally 10 minutes after I'd crushed the keys, and, and I get a phone call, and this lady says, can you hold for Dan Rather? You know, Dan Rather was big-time stuff in those days, nightly news or CBS News. And so I hold, and sure enough, Dan Rather comes on the other end of the line. He says, welcome home, Don. Great job. Really proud of you here at CBS News. I said, thanks, Dan. It's John, by the way, but, you know, cool. A really nice, nice sentiment. And he says, you know, we'd like you to pop over to West 57 to the studio tomorrow to come on our new CBS Morning News show. And I said, you know, that'd be great, Dan. I, I'm in San Francisco, though. <laughs> and he goes, oh, well, um, well, my producer will work this out. So the producer <laughs> comes on, and she says, you know, we know you're in San Francisco. He's an idiot. We're just having him call the guests. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so they sent a limo down and picked me up and whizzed us off to New York. And we went on the CBS Morning News and felt pretty impressed with ourselves, although I had zero money. I mean, I literally had no money. <laughs> My mom was sailing somewhere in the Pacific at that time. I just uh, kind of hoping I didn't have to, like, pay for anything. And then uh, finally I got a little advance from Stroh's, and we went on TV shows all over the country after that. I love the story of you were stay, sit, staying in a fancy hotel and you would <laughs> lurk by the door until the crowd went in. Yeah, so I didn't have to tip the doorman. <laughs> and then we we used we raided the mini bar at the Essex House because it was the only food we could afford. <laughs> we were famous and completely broke. Oh, yeah, that was good. And then, yeah, the great story, though, is we uh, the last show I went on was this one of these classic shows of that era where towns, each city had its own afternoon talk show and this was in Detroit my hometown and then went on this show that it was called Kelly and Company and the three guests were me Joyce Brothers who was this child this this pop psychologist who was on all these shows all the time and kind of an unpleasant person <laughs> and Richard Simmons who was goofy and so I came out and did my thing and you know by this time you know I gave a pretty good talk and the, the host was like Come on, make me feel what the ocean was like. So I stood up from the couch and I grabbed his easy chair and I lifted him up and I shook it and I said it was like that around the horn, you know, and it was big TV stuff. And then Joyce Brothers came out after that and she sits with her back to me and she says to the host, she goes, you know, your first guest was was interesting, but I've invariably found these adventurer types are masking some form of sexual repression. And then you look at the tape. I've got to put it on my website because it says John Kretschmer, adventurer. <laughs> anyway, after that. Sexually repressed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> after that, we, uh, I went on to a new career of being a yacht delivery captain. And mm-hmm. I love doing that. <clears throat> That's what I did for the next, really until the kids were born. That was my dream job, delivering boats all over the world mm-hmm. and having adventures and then giving you the keys back. You write about that a lot in... Um... Uh, sailing the serious yeah. ocean yeah. and flirting too flirting, flirting is all okay. about my deliveries yeah so that was really a good life i mean i went 10 years without ever spending 30 consecutive days in the states wow yeah just moving around a lot and it gave you a an encyclopedic knowledge of different kinds of boats yeah it really did it was it's really helped me in my sailing career because i've sailed i think at one time i calculated i'd sailed almost 60 different boats at least a thousand miles at a time you know at a stretch wow so yeah i had a really good idea about what i liked in boats and what i didn't and 
And I was, my motto became when something broke, figure out why you didn't need it anymore. <laughs> but yeah, it was really good training for, for what I've done with my sale training business. Yeah, so how did the idea of the sale training business come about then? So the reality is the girls were born. Yeah. And the thing about being a delivery skipper is you have to be spontaneous. Mm. Person wants a boat delivered and you take it and you it's kind of an open-ended affair. So I needed a more scheduled life for the first time ever and it actually it came about through another friend of mine i had a guy who i used to deliver his hylas 49 every year for him and he basically said look i'm he was going broke he said um why don't you just have people pay to crew um use my boat and all he wanted the boat in antigua in april and the chesapeake in the summer and otherwise he said it's yours so i was able to use his hylas 49 to start this business it was really Henry's idea. That's and great. then, yeah, eventually bought Quetzal. And, Quetzal. Yeah. You found her in, in Solomon's as well, right? Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's a funny story, actually, finding her. She, uh, <laughs> I was really, I decided um, to buy a boat for this business and also to kind of double as a home for the girls and I. And I was looking at Yacht World, you know, like we all do, right? Yeah. We all study Yacht World till we're sick of it. And I that couldn't really, really change boat buying, being able to go online and just unbelievable. Through boats. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah. I mean, it's probably ruined a few marriages. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, are you looking at porn, honey? Yeah. No, no, I'm just looking at Yacht oh, World. No, that's worse. It's <laughs> yeah. more expensive. But anyway, I I found this boat that I I was really interested in, and it I was looking at the picture. And I could tell it was sitting in Washburn's boatyard right across from Spring Cove. Yeah. It was a Kaufman 47. And I knew the boat because I had delivered a CT 49 years before, which is the same hull and a great sailing boat. And I'm looking at it, and they're asking 150000 which or 139000 which was way more than I had to spend. I had 100000 in a perfect world. And I called up my brother-in-law. I said, Trevor look out your window over at Washburn's. You might be able to see this boat I'm interested in. He swirled in his chair. He said, I can't see it, but I'll go check it out. So we went and checked it out, and he called me back, and he said, oh, it's a great boat. It's a, you know, it looks like an old swan, and it looks like it's unused. He said, but you might be interested to know that it's in the part of the yard that uh, um, St. Mary's College keeps their donated boats. Ooh. So he said, I know the athletic director there who runs the sailing program, and he gave me his name. His name was Mike Ironmonger. So I call the guy up, and he goes, Ironmonger. And I say, Mike Ironmonger? As if there's more Ironmongers in the world, right? He goes, yeah, what can I do for you? I said, well, my name's John Kretschmer. And he goes, John Kretschmer? And he said it in a way, like maybe I owed him money. or you know, <laughs> He goes, flirting with mermaids, John Kretschmer? I said, yeah. He goes, God, that's my favorite book. I said, man, you got to read more. <laughs> Seriously. And he goes, wow, what are you calling me? And I said, well, I'm interested in your boat that you guys have listed there. And he goes, oh, great timing. You know, we've got to sell that boat. You know, Jesus, don't tell anyone, but just between you and me, I, I'll sell it for 100000 right now. Something, this is interesting. So I fly up and I look at it and, you know, I'm determined I'm going to be really, you know, hard-minded about it. And, and I see the boat from 50 yards and I think, <laughs> I'll sell one of the girls if I have to. <laughs> Boat, I mean, and then ended up uh, kind of negotiating down and yeah it's turned out to be an amazing boat what is it when you see a boat from afar and you just you just know 
Yeah, it's weird. You know, for me, I think it's having sailed all those boats. Yeah, I could only, I could just literally close my eyes and feel how this boat was going to feel on the ocean. But it is. It's completely irrational. Like it's not dramatically different than when you see someone and fall in love. I mean, it is crazy. I mean, there's, and that's the problem with sailing. There is no real rational way to explain it. It's, it's a romantic thing. And it's, yeah, when you get the right boat, and I write this all the time now, with the right boat, virtually anything is possible. With the wrong boat, you, you know, that, that makes you put your dreams in a, in a fragile place. But when you have the boat that can fulfill your dreams, man, it's a, such a good feeling. Yeah. <laughs> it's the, to me, it is freedom. And it sounds like for you, sailing has always gone hand in hand with, <clears throat> with storytelling, with writing, with that romanticism. Is writing a way for you to process what you've experienced? Completely. Um, you know, I always joke. I'm always telling jokes and funny stories, but it's true. My 10th grade career advisor, you know, I was an indifferent student, but wanted to write and, you know, always read a lot. And, she, you know, I told her I wanted to be a sailor and write books about it. And she was just so disgusted with that answer. <laughs> I mean, but I did. I wanted to write. Um, I had read so many sailing books and adventure books and backpacking books and the idea of living an adventure-filled life and writing books about it. They, it just, they, I always saw them as something to do together. The writing of it would help me understand it. And, and now, you know, when you write a lot, you reach a point where until you write about it, you're not really sure you do understand it. Mm. And, mm. um, and I take I mean, the, the two great passions in my life have been books and boats. Mm -hmm. And I have wanted the, the fact that people like my books kind of amazes me. I, I had actually an old high school English teacher sail with me on one of my training passages. How was, great is that? Oh, it was great. And he was a, he's a fun guy. He signed up for another trip next year. And um, he told the crew, you know, he said he thought there was a, he was the assistant track coach too. He said there was a tiny chance I thought John might, you know, make the Olympic trials or something as a pole vaulter, but no shot he'd ever write a book. <laughs> <laughs> but we joke about so it. So how's now. the pole vaulting going these days? Yeah, the pole not so good. <laughs> not so good. Um, so what books have you read lately? What sailing do you still read sailing books? Yeah, but I've kind of morphed over into more classic books. I'm actually, um, I'll give you a, a big scoop here, Ben. I'm, I'm working on a novel. Ooh. Yeah. I've got a kind of a really good agent, um, and he's enthusiastic about it. So I've read, I actually read, a. am reading kind of classic nautical books at the moment again. I just read a great book. I wonder if you know it. It's called Spartina don't know it. It's written by John Casey, and it was a 1989 uh, National Book Award winner. And it's about a fisherman down and out who's building a boat in his backyard. And it also ends up with a dramatic storm story in it. And it's a great book. Really, really great book. Um, I just read Far Tortuga by Peter Matheson, uh -huh. which is a really surprisingly great sailing book. So I've been kind of thinking more along those lines in okay. my reading. But yeah, I still read everybody's books. You know, it's, yeah. it's kind of cool now. I get people sending me their books. and That's great. Yeah. But, yeah, you're, you're a mentor in terms of sailing. Have you found yourself being a mentor in terms of writing as well? Yeah, I have to, to some degree. Um, 
I've helped a lot of people get published, and it's hard. Writing is so personal. Yeah. And sailing is too, but not to the same degree that writing is. And I think that with writing, one of the mistakes people make is that they don't take chances. They write in a in a way that they think they're supposed to write. And I, I think the second mistake people make when they write is they don't read enough. I think you have to read until your brain aches and then you have to write it your own way. And when, you can, when you've read enough and you've, the stories percolate through your brain, you can find kind of a, a path through. Huh. Um, and those are the, that's kind of the advice I give people. But ultimately, writing is such a pain in the ass. <laughs> I mean, you write, right? That's what you do for a living. Yeah. I mean, it's hard work. And it's the old quote. You just sit there with a blank, blank page until oh, yeah. you bleed. <laughs> you bleed, exactly. I mean, and, you know, it's funny because when you end up reading your stuff years later, and you know, I've had some, some interesting things happen writing. My book, Flirting with Mermaids, and this is a, a, something I was pretty proud of, was chosen as a maritime classic by this new imprint, Lions Press. And the three books they chose to start it with were Wanderer, The Long Way, and Flirting with Mermaids. Not, not bad company. Yeah, I mean, I, I have no idea why they picked flirting. But I was, it was pretty, I felt really proud about that. And uh, my book, At the Mercy of the Sea, was nominated. It was one of the 24 best nonfiction books of 2006 or something. So I've had a little trivial success with my stuff but when i read them and i i sometimes you're really inspired right and you think you're writing great stuff and sometimes you just think it's horrible and you can't really tell when you were inspired and when you weren't it all sounds the same yeah, it? yeah it's just so the way you write you don't have the distance from it yeah i mean everybody needs an editor right oh god yes. <laughs> when people tell me they don't like editors i think are you kidding editors have saved me i've had really good editors Molly Mulhern, who used to be my editor at McGraw-Hill, moved over to Bloomsbury and was the editor on Edge of Time, and she could just always hold my feet to the fire. Yeah. This book of mine, At the Mercy of the Sea, I had a great editor. You probably know of him. His name's Peter Nielsen. He wrote Voyage for Mad Men. Mm -hmm. Lots yeah. of really good books. A really fine writer, and he was ruthless. He would, I mean, if it didn't advance the story, cut it. Wow. <laughs> yeah. He hates fluff. <laughs> Well, you've taken risks in your writing and your sailing. It's actually something I wanted to ask you about because your your mother sails as well. You were talking about how she kept her joie de vie and, and she actually sailed around the world. Sailed around yeah. the world. Um, and you were mentioning that she did it by very smartly sailing at the right times, mm -hmm. in the right seasons, in the right oceans. Advice you didn't always heed yourself. <laughs> True enough. <laughs> well, one thing about being a delivery skipper is that you quickly learn that the, there are very few good deliveries at the right time of year because uh, those are oftentimes when the owners have sailed the boats there themselves. Sure, right. <laughs> I mean, they want to the, be on the every, boat when it's beautiful. Everybody, every delivery skipper out here in your neck of the woods knows that the real the trip's from Hawaii back, and that's twice as hard. I mean... Sailing out to Hawaii, it's a long way, and I don't mean to diminish it, but it's downwind and it's pleasant. Getting the boats home is a pain in the neck, and that's yeah. the delivery that you would get. And so, yeah, a lot of my craziest trips were, weather-wise, were just basic deliveries that Got you had it. to get going. 
Um, that makes I, sense. I was always kind of intrigued by the challenge of it, too. You know that story I talked about taking a, a boat from Newport, Rhode Island, to Stockholm in January? Mm. I mean, that was crazy, right? But yeah. there was a weird incentive to do it. The Sweden at that time, I have no idea if they still do, had a law that if Swedish citizens bought boats abroad and had them delivered on their own bottom from so many miles away and they were arrived in Sweden before March 1st, the duty was like 10% of what it would have been. Wow. So, yeah, it was a way to some little loophole they had. And so there's two young guys who had bought this Ocean 71 paid me a lot of money but really wanted me to arrive before March 1st. And so we did. <clears throat> and what did you encounter on the way? Serious winds. Um, we left Newport on January 25th or 3rd, I think. And we had 10 consecutive days probably of somewhere around force nine and big seas were built up and we encountered one massive gale and, and, and it, i joke about it because i call it force unlucky because i had thought the beaufort scale topped out at force 12 and i think it does <laughs> and i we were just getting rocked in this storm and i called a nearby ship on the radio just just to kind of you know get some reassurance and it was a dutch ship and I said to him, I said, what's it blowing out here? And he said, Force 13. I said, it can't be. There's only 12. He said, well, then call it Force Unlucky. Wow. So, yeah, I, we had winds that night of probably 60, 70 knots. And it, unlike a hurricane, these were just, these depressions just stayed with you. And taught me a lot about heavy weather storm management because... We were reaching and running with these storms, and we tended to stay in the path of depressions a long time. So you have nor'easters north of that, and then the regular jet stream would bring the westerlies off the continent. And, you know, so if you veered further north, you were really getting rocked by the nor'easters. But if you stayed with the westerlies in January and February, they were often gale force, and you stayed with them a long time. So the thing about foreaching as a strategy I write a lot about is that you're able to move your boat away from the depression. And that's a really important part of storm management. Hmm. You know, I, I, the idea of heaving to and just staying put means you kind of wait for the depression to move along. But if you're foreaching on attack that's moving the opposite way the storm's going and even if you're doing three or four knots and the storm's moving at six or seven so for people who may not know, sorry i moved off no here. that's yeah. all right I, yeah. I, I mean this is fascinating actually i wanted to ask you about it but the different so heaving to most people know back when the jib you're right. just kind of meandering along yeah uh, explain for reaching so for reaching is is a term that's more misunderstood than it should be it's kind of maybe you could say throttled back close reaching so you choose a course and, and the thing i've observed about for reaching there's the, the, the advantage is you move away from the storm because let's say the storm is moving to the northeast and you for reach to the south or whatever this, you're going to be putting distance between you and the storm, and 24 hours of that can be a huge distance, and the weather conditions change quickly. But secondly, the reason foreaching works, and people who question it don't realize this, is that the seas and the winds don't line up very often. They're close, but a 10 or 15 degree difference is dramatic. So depending on the strategy that you want, usually you'll take the tack 
to where the seas are not rocking you as violently on the bow. You're getting a little better angle on the sea state, but still sailing on a close reach, throttled way back, making your way through the ocean. And I, I'm always showing this to people on the boat when the things get rough. I say, just watch the water. Look at it really carefully because the waves typically are kind of the wind's messenger. They're going to let you know what's coming and because they're being forced, they're being acted upon from a long way away. You know, the underlying swell is giving you an idea of what's coming your way and you can find a pathway through the water. You're on the same point of sail on either tack and one is dramatically better. And, you know, we observe that sailing all the time, but it's really important in heavy weather. And figure that out and then just ease along and put some distance from the storm. And that's what foreaching is. <laughs> well, if people want to experience this and learn from you in person on Quetzal, yeah. how do they go about doing that? They send me an email. Um, they go to my website. It's easy now. It's johnkretschmersailing.com. Um, okay. And yeah, and if it's hard to get aboard Quetzal, but there's good news. We've we've partnered with a really fantastic young couple. We just, Taji and I really, really like them. They're Nathan and Vivian, and they have a Compass 47, and we're incorporating some of their trips into our, our universe. And so if you can't find your way onto Quetzal, because the trips do sell out pretty quick, yeah. um, Getting aboard with Nathan and Vivian is a really good idea, and they're just fantastic young people and among our best friends. So, Wonderful. Yeah, thanks so much, Pat. John, this has been fabulous. I have so many more questions I want to ask you, but we'll have to do it again another time. <laughs> Sounds good. And, yeah, um, we will for sure. Thanks. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to get to meet you. Yeah. Thanks. Same here. All right. Hope you enjoyed that. That wraps up this week's show. Thanks again, as always, for listening. Everyone, stay safe. I like to think of what we're doing not as social distancing, but being social at a distance. Stay at home as much as you can. We need to stop the spread of this virus, but reach out to those you love, those in need, and anyone who might need a little encouragement during these difficult days. Stay safe. Be well. I'm Ben Shaw, host and producer of the show. Until next week, smooth sailing.